0: grace and peace to you, and welcome to Real Life Radio with Pastor Sean Azaro of River City Community Church, right here in San Antonio, Texas. A church that exists to help people just like you find the real life you were created for and then find it to the full. That's exactly what Jesus said in John 10.10. And we're in a series right now on awakening real faith with a message called Unseen, Compelled by Faith, as you're about to hear the powerful impact that real faith has on those around us especially in a world that doesn't believe, real faith stands out. It is inspiring and transforming. Pastor Sean will start the teaching in 2 Kings. It's time now for Real Life Radio.
1: Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, we're going to pick up in this conversation that we started called Unseen Awakening Real Faith. Unseen Awakening Real Faith. And that title kind of talks about one of the challenges of real faith. Because it is dealing with an unseen God, a spiritual God. The scripture says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that's the part that's difficult for us. Because we recognize the scripture teaches and we see in the lives of the people in scripture this powerful move of God. But yet we're raised in a world that only respects and values the material, the concrete, the stuff that we can see and experience with our physical senses. And so that creates a bit of a stumbling block for some of us. When we even try to talk about faith, people have all sorts of convoluted ideas about what faith is. Well, it's a mental ascent, it's hopeful thinking, all kinds of things that people come up with. No, we've seen that, remember we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the evidence, the conviction of things that are unseen. Second 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, the Apostle Paul wrote a little bit more about that. He said, so we are always of good courage. For we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Now, stop and think about this for a minute. <clears throat> that's the part that's challenging. We walk by faith, not by sight. What if we switch that around? What if we, we walk by sight, not by faith? As you stop and think about it, what would change in the life of many of us within the body of Christ and many of us who profess faith in Christ here in the U.S.? If we stopped and said, no, no, we walk by sight, not by faith, what would change? Would something radically change? And if not, that's a problem. That's a real problem because he's saying we're walking by faith. Faith changes the way you walk. It changes the way you live, not just how you claim to think, because how you really think always affects how you walk, not just what you say or how you talk, but we walk. It changes how we live. And this is one of the big kind of complaints and challenges that we hear from the non-Christian world, the non-professing world around us, that there's a lot of talk, but not quite as much walk. Uh, the Barna Group did a study recently where they actually surveyed <clears throat> a large group of Christian people, professing Christians in the U.S. And what they did is they gave them 20 statements, okay, five of four different types of statements. And they were going to assess, and now these are self-assessments, assess whether people had attitudes and actions more like Christ or like the Pharisees, okay? So you're like, oh, that's kind of harsh. But that's what they did, Okay. And so they had these questions that they would ask them to see. They, had, they, they asked about attitudes and actions that, that looked like Jesus, or attitudes and actions that looked like Pharisees. And they used the phrase self-righteousness. Some of the questions about actions like Jesus. Well, I listened to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. In recent years, I've influenced multiple people to consider following Christ. I try to discover the needs of non-Christians rather than waiting for them to come to me. Those are some of the questions that manifest actions like Jesus. How about attitudes like Jesus? They Well, I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. I believe God's for everyone. I see God work in people's lives even when they're not following him. Can, can God do that? Hint, he's God. I feel compassion for people who are not following God and doing immoral things. So those were attitudes like Jesus. Self-righteous attitudes were manifest with questions like this. Well, I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. I don't talk about my sins and struggles. That's between me and God. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. Those were actions that kind of had a self-focus or a self-righteous kind of Tint to them so far just attitudes were picked up in questions like i find it hard to be friends with people who seem to be constantly doing the wrong things it's not my responsibility to help people who won't help themselves i believe we should stand against those who are opposed to christian values people who follow god's rules are better than those who do not so with questions like that there were 20 questions it wasn't a vast group of questions Five, showing attitudes and actions of Jesus, and attitudes and actions of what they consider self-righteous or Pharisees. So they were divided people into four different categories, okay? On this grid, the answers put you on a grid. Christ-like in action and attitude, that was one of the quadrants. Christ-like in action, but not in attitude. Christ-like in attitude, but not in action. Christ-like in neither. Neither. And sadly, the findings reveal that most self identified Christians in the U.S. are characterized, characterized by having attitudes and actions that researchers identified as Pharisaical. Just over half the nation's Christians, professing Christians, using the broadest definition of those call, who call themselves Christians, qualify for that category. 51%, so in the quadrant of they displayed neither Christ like attitudes nor actions, 51% fell in that. In the opposite quadrant where they did, displayed both Christ like attitudes and actions, only 14%. And the rest were divided in the other two quadrants. As a pastor, obviously that's heartbreaking. Um, I wish I could say, based on experience and observation, that that's terribly surprising. And I know that the, the label is broad. I know lots of people who consider themselves, well, Christian because, well, my family was, so it's kind of like my nationality, my heritage, you know. I understand that. But that's what the world looks and sees and says Christians. And then we wonder why we see this rapid decline in people who profess faith in Christ. In the last 10 years, it's dropped almost 10% people who profess to be a Christian. Still the majority in America, but it's, it's an alarming change. And the people who profess no affiliation religiously is conversely increasing. And when we understand the idea of faith being a belief so strong, I have to act on it. I have to act on it. Faith determines what you put your trust in. It determines how I live. It's tangible. It's visible. It's palpable in the life of a person. When I understand that, these numbers aren't surprising to me. And that question that we ask, remember Jesus asked the question, will the Son of Man find faith when he comes to the earth? That's a haunting question. It's not will he find church attendance? Will he find people who own Bibles? Will he find people who go to Bible studies? Will he find faith? That belief that's so strong, it has to drive my life, my attitudes, my vision, my priorities, my dreams, my goals. Will he find that? So when we look at the book of Second Kings now, we see a story that gives a picture of the power that faith can have in the life of a person and how influential that can be around them. Remember, the, the prophet Elisha is the prophet, God's man, if you will, at the time. It's not good times for the kingdom. The kingdom is slipping. The kings were slipping. Faith is at an all-time low. But we have to be careful, because when we see those kind of things happening in the public eye, we must never assume that God is not at work, because God's always at work. Okay? That's the good news. God's always at work. And so, in 2 Kings 5, beginning at verse 1, we are introduced to a man named Naaman. Now, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. That's an ancient name for the nation that became Syria. Commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Stop! Wait a minute, Aram. Okay, um, we're going to see that there was lots of conflict and tension between Israel and Aram. Israel's God's people. Aram's not. The Syrians were not God's people. But through this guy Naaman, God had given victory to them. We'll talk about this a little more in a minute, but it's amazing how God and can do what God wants to do when God wants to do it. And he'll use people wherever he finds them, whose heart is soft and open towards him.
0: And let's take a quick minute to remind you, you're listening to Real Life Radio with Pastor Sean Azaro of River City Community Church in a series on faith called Unseen. And if you'd like to hear the full message or even watch the video podcast from Pastor Sean, it's available right now on demand on the sermon page at the River City website called reallife.org.
1: God created you for something very special. Come find out more at River City Community Church.
0: And back to this message called Compelled by Faith. This is Real Life Radio.
1: But Naaman, we're told, is the commander of the army of the kingdom of Aram, a great man. So he's over the whole army, great man. Through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. And now, we would have a picture of a guy. I want to be careful that we don't get a picture of Aram and we think of, you know, like military leaders that we could relate to, you know. You know, we think of military leaders today, we think of officers, we think of gentlemen, we think of civilized warfare. okay, you need to know something. Um, there were no drones here there was There was no sitting behind a computer monitor and you know sending commands up to the front line or precision strikes at at targets and facilities through yeah technology. There was none of that. Warfare was um, brutal violence, man to man swords shields, hacking one another to settle disputes, to take territories. That's what warfare was. It was brutal. man. man. And you need to understand something about Naaman before we go any further. He had risen to the top, not just of a unit or a regiment or a particular branch. He was the commander of the entire military for a nation. He was an unbelievable warrior. He was brutal. He was scarred. He'd risen to the top in the most brutal type of warfare you can imagine. That's who Naaman was. And he was the cream of the cream as a fighter. And we're told he was valiant, but he had leprosy. He had leprosy, it was incurable. When the Bible talks about leprosy, there were a number of skin diseases that were degenerative, they were flesh eating, and they were incurable. And he had one of those. Now we're told, now bands of raiders from Aram, so his guys, bands of raiders from Aram, had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served his wife, Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master, the king, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Stop that! Stop and think about this thing. You need to know, we can just breeze through this up and not catch what's happening here. This is a girl who'd been taken from her home, a young girl presumably, and she was taken as a slave. Naaman, the commander of the military, they had sent raiding parties into Israel, had plundered, taken money, taken food, taken livestock, oh yeah, and taken people as slaves. This little girl was one of those people. And yet, she so loved her master that she couldn't stand to see him deteriorating with this disease that was eating him alive. And she said, if only my master could go to Israel and see the prophet, God would make him whole. I love that. There's something about this guy Naaman. He's way more than a brutal military warrior. There's something in him that caused this little slave girl to care deeply. And what I find even more interesting, he believed her. I mean, this wasn't just the superstition of a little girl from her superstitious religious beliefs of some little girl that we'd taken, slave girl from another nation. Something in her had caught his attention to where he believed him, put his own word and neck on the line, goes to his master, the king, and the king believes Naaman. This is really incredible when you stop thinking about this little slave girl starts this whole process, where the king says, "Okay, I'll send a letter to the king of Israel." So Naaman left, taking with him some gifts: ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel said, "Read with this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy." As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and he said, "Am I God?" He didn't say, well, this is nice, you know. He said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? What does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? Have you ever seen the words I and me more in two sentences? Me, me, I, I. And and what's fascinating is he's having this pity party while there before him is standing this man who you know, this had to be unbelievably humbling to go to a an enemy king, and asked for help. He's a proud, physically imposing warrior, except for the fact that he's being eaten alive by leprosy. And all the king can think is, what's this going to mean for me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent, his, he sent him this message. It's interesting. So this went on for a couple of days. I don't know how long it took for word to get out to Elijah. The king didn't send for him. He gets word, and so he hears about it, and he sends a messenger back to the king. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he'll know that there is a prophet in Israel, a prophet of God. So Naaman went with the horses, the chariots, stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, well, I thought he'd surely come out to me, stand, call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Name had have been watching Christian TV. Okay? He wanted the show. Okay? He wanted the Benny Hinn thing. I mean, the full enchilada. He knew what was supposed to happen. The guy's supposed to come out. He's supposed to wave his hand. He's supposed to have a little show, a little song and dance. Maybe the choir sings. And then, boom. And he's put off. He, he didn't even come out. He just sends a messenger. It's fascinating how, how low-key the real work of God usually is. Isn't it? I mean, Jesus, some of the times he would just do something amazing. He would go, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Just go give thanks to the Lord. Go show yourself to the priest. Be certified clean, but don't, don't go say anything. There's a, a certain divine... Humility about the way God works. It's not that he doesn't want people to know because I think he does. It's that it's the way he works. He wants people to hunger and thirst and discover. He doesn't want to overwhelm and wow them with the show. He wants them simply to trust him and see the power of God. So he's mad. He didn't come. He didn't wave his hand and cure. He goes on, are not Albana and Farpar, the rivers in Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in rage. Now, we're about to learn something else that really is revealing about the character of this warrior, Naaman. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you to go wash and be cleansed? So he went down, and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. There's so much right there. First of all, the man had the humility to listen to the wisdom of one of his servants. If he'd asked you to go and do some great crusade, would you have done it? Well, of course. I'm a warrior. That's what I do. Well, then why not do it? And then he asked him to go down and dip seven times in the Jordan. And and he was right. They had better rivers right there in in, in, in Syria. Why couldn't they do that? So don't you know the first time he dips? Nothing. Still nothing. I mean, don't you know he felt stupid? He's this proud military warrior. All his guys are standing there. They had to talk him into going and doing it. Anything yet, sir? No. Seven times. Kind of like maybe the children of Israel felt they were walking around Jericho one time. You know, for me, it's always the veggie tail image. Keep walking, but you won't knock down our wall. But I digress, okay? <laughs> ah! You got more veggie tail fans than. <laughs> you know, but he had to have kind of that feeling of it doesn't work. I told you I needed the waving of the hands and the voice and the stuff. But then the seventh time it says he came up and his skin was like that of a baby. It was new. And understand, um, it wasn't just the way it was before because this man was a warrior. He wasn't young, he was the commander. He was uh, getting up in years. Do you imagine how scarred and brutalized his skin had been over the years of that kind of warfare? Not anymore. His skin is like that of a young child. And he looks and he's amazed. And for us, how many times does God ask us to do things that are contrary to what we think should happen? We think it should look like this. It should be the show. We should this is how it works, God, because I've read the books and da da da. And I think God intentionally asks us to do things different so that our, our focus, our objective, even our worship won't be on the method or even on the outcome that we desire. It'll all be on Him. He asks us to do things that don't make sense. He asks us to do things that sometimes stretch us because then there's no doubt about who did what. So it doesn't become an incantation, some sort of formula that if I run the formula, then, it'll, then God always does this. It doesn't work like that. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. And he stood before him. Now the man of God came out, by the way. And he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answers, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Nathan, Naaman urged him, he refused. Now I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel. This man was radically transformed. He saw the power of God and it changed him. This story is really unusual. I think fascinating because it has three kind of unique Almost unexpected twists to it. First is where it takes place. The fact that it took place with this Syrian guy in Syria. Luke four twenty seven. Jesus n- commented on this, how unusual this was. He said, there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So this caught Jesus' attention. And he said, all the lepers in Israel, not one cured It was instead Naaman. You see, we got to get rid of this idea of God working exactly for us as we see things. God is God, and he works sometimes in godless places, in and through godless people. He's looking for hearts that are his. We tend to think of God in terms of us and them. He's our God, and he works on our behalf. Yet Joshua learned better. I love this passage. In Joshua chapter 5, it's right before the battle of Jericho. Joshua's out kind of strategizing and thinking. And in verse 13 of Joshua 5, we read, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him and a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemy? Neither, the man replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does the Lord have for his servant?" I love that. I love that. He walks up. Are you for us or for our enemy? No. I come as the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua got it immediately and bowed down on his face, fell down on his face in front of him because Joshua knew what was what's going on. See, Joshua asked the wrong question. And I think we asked that question too. The question is not, is God for us? It's, are we for God? Because <laughs> he's God. The question is not, God, are you on my, our side? Because that's how we kind of try to work it out. God, I want you to bless this. I got this plan. I want you to bless it. God, I got this thing I want to do, and I need, need you to bless it, God. I, want, I got this person. I got the influence. I need you to, to bless my plan. It's the wrong question. Wrong question. Instead, it should be more, God, I want to be a part of your plan. I mean, in my family, God, what's your plan? I want to be a catalyst. I want to be a, a player in your plan, God. What do you want to do? Because you're God. I trust you. God at work. What do you want to do? There's people all around. God, I want to be a part of what you're doing here. For Joshua, this was the God who had led them out of Egypt under Moses. This was the God who he had had experienced and seen. This was a God he'd followed through the wilderness. But he was reminded, it's the wrong question if you ask, okay, are you for us or for the enemy? No, I'm, I'm God. The question is, are you for me?
0: Thank you, Pastor Sean Azaro. You've been listening to Real Life Radio in this series called "Unseen Awakening: Real Faith." And if you'd like to hear the full unedited message and this series, it's available right now when you find the sermons link at reallife.org. But of course, you're invited to come and visit us at River City Community Church, located on Lookout Road, right behind Rotama Park. You can find the details, directions, and service times also at reallife.org. If you'd like to call the church, the number is two 210- ten. 490-5262 as Real Life Radio is a service of River City Community Church. And we hope you join us again next time for more Real Life.
1: Do you ever look at your life and feel like you were made for something more? Jesus made a simple statement. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came to give you abundant life. Real life. River City is located a mile and a half outside of Loop 1604 on Lookout Road across from Otama Park. Service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9.30 and 11.15 a.m. River City is a church for real life, so our home on the web is reallife.org. To find out more, visit us online at reallife.org. God created you for something very special.
0: Come find out more at River City Community Church.